Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 26, verses 47 through 75. That's the book of Matthew, chapter 26, verses 47 through 75. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find one under the chair in front of you, and you can open it to page 782. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is a man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place, that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus, that they might be put they might put him to death, but they found none. Though many false witnesses came forward, at last two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to, to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered. He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that, you, that, you, that struck you? Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you two are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you all here. I want to say hi to the online people who are joining us live stream. I thought it was pretty apt that uh, today's passage was read by Peter and um, traitor. But uh, yeah, 
It was, it was good reading. It was a long passage. We're going to get to it as, uh, as well as we can. So before we start, let's pray. Prepare our hearts, O Lord, to accept your word. Silence in us any voice but your own, that hearing we may also obey your will. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So... <clears throat> What's on everybody's mind is probably uh, what's going on with our government and what's going on with our nation and things of that nature. We definitely want to be people who are vigilant, who want to uh, prepare ourselves well, you know, continue to wash your hands, keep that social distance. Uh, if you're feeling sick at all, like even if you have a sore throat, we're asking people to stay home, and many of you have, so I thank you for that. And so by doing that, we're trying to mitigate the spread of the virus. Um, and so by mitigating the spread of the virus, so let's say, you know, um, about 100 million people in the States are going to get infected. You don't want all 100 million people to get infected in the span of one month. Our hospitals and our healthcare system wouldn't be able to take care of that. So by mitigating it, by prolonging that, even if it's 100 million people over the course of like a year or more, that'll help alleviate some of the pressures the healthcare system will have to take on because of this virus. So we want to do our best. We want to keep vigilant. So once again, wash your hands, um, keep a distance from people when talking, and especially if you are you know, talking to your parents or the elderly, you want to maintain that distance. And if you're sick at all, even with a sore throat, we're asking that you stay home and join us online, and then we can worship together that way. Technology is actually pretty wonderful you know, even a few years ago, this would not have been possible. So we praise God that we can worship together. One other thing that I would like to share with you is that as Christians, we are also called to pray. We're not called to be anxious. Uh, a lot of people have been making these decisions with a heart of anxiety, and this is not what we want you to do, or this is not what God wants for you either. Uh, we are called to pray. So when you make a decision... Let's say you have a sore throat, and people have been texting me, oh my gosh, I have a sore throat, should I stay home? It's like, sure, why not? But did you pray about it? Is, are you making all these decisions in anxiety? Because we don't want you to do that because then you're going to buy up all the toilet paper, and that just doesn't make any sense. Unless you're like really suffering from diarrhea, then yeah, buy all the toilet paper you need. But I was so... Um, so curious, why are, people, why are people buying up all the toilet paper um, when this is not a toilet paper disease? And so I, I saw this one article that tried to explain it. A psychologist came out and said that toilet paper gives us a sense of peace. As long as you have toilet paper stocked in your house, you're like, at least I have toilet paper. And I was like, are you serious? Like, just go to the bathroom and take a shower. But I don't know. People, people will do. But for us, for Christians, what gives us more security than toilet paper, and I know this is a crazy statement, what gives us more security than toilet paper is the assurance that God is with us and that God is sovereign, that God is in control. Okay? And so that's why we're called to pray. Again, I want to remind you of Philippians 4, 6, where we are admonished. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So that's what I would like for all of us to do. Don't be anxious, but don't be lax. But in prayer, 
make your requests be known to God, and act accordingly. Um, that being said, we're going to go straight into the passage. While he was still speaking is how this passage starts out. While he was still speaking, while Jesus was still saying how his betrayer is at hand, Judas came, one of the twelve. And with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer, who was Judas, had given them a sign saying, The one I will kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and he kissed him. No kissing here, right? But he kissed him at that time as a greeting. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. Judas was with the crowd armed with swords and clubs, and they would come to arrest Jesus. Judas would tell this crowd, it's the man I kiss, that's the man you want. That's Jesus. And Judas goes straight to Jesus and he goes, Greetings, Rabbi, a clear mockery, but it was for others to hear. And then greet Jesus with a kiss. Judas's kiss is now universally known as the symbol of betrayal. To pretend to be intimate and even loving, using those very symbols as an act of betrayal is a twisting of the knife already plunged into the back of someone who has opened their life to you. Judas needed to make very and overtly clear who Jesus was because unlike our day of social media, with close-up pictures of everyone, we can count the pores on their noses, the faces of celebrities would not have been widely known. And the links that Jesus goes through to betray Jesus is outstanding, is astounding. And indeed, if you think of Jesus' words, it would have been better if that man had not been born, resonates deeply. Someone who could just blatantly use your most intimate knowledge to hurt and kill you, let alone it wasn't just anyone you did this to, it was to God. And so Jesus addresses Judas as friend. This is a word we are familiar with in Jesus' usage. Friend in chapter 20, verse 13 is, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Right? In the parable of the vineyard workers. A friend also in 22.12 is, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And then he was cast out. So friend, this isn't a warm greeting, but it's just a matter-of-fact greeting. It's used to get someone's attention, to tell them a truth. Do what you came to do. Because Jesus knows there's no more ambiguity. It's clear, and he knows the heart of his betrayer. What's even more incredible is that Jesus allows them to proceed by laying their hands on Jesus and to seize him. And if you look at John 18, this is what happens. As they approach Jesus, they would draw back and fall. In the Greek, it shows us that it wasn't just a step back to take a knee. It was when Jesus, when they would go to take Jesus and to betray Jesus, they would be pushed back and they would fall on their face. The word is to fall on your face, to fall prostrate. That's what happened in John 18 when they tried to take Jesus. They would be pushed back and they would fall on their face. And there are three instances of betrayal here in today's passage. And in all three cases, they knew exactly who Jesus was 
when they betrayed him. That's the point. They knew exactly who they were betraying. So no one is able to say, oh, I didn't know he was the son of God. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? This is when Peter would take his sword and cut off the ear of the high priest's servant. In John, we see that the servant's name is Malchus. It's fascinating when the accounts mentions names because of the timeline when the Gospels were written, you could literally go and verify if it was true. And if not directly from the witnesses themselves, the people that knew Malchus. It's like, does this really happen? Did Peter cut off your ear, Malchus? And so Jesus stops Peter in Luke's account. And we see that Jesus goes even further than what we see here and heals the ear of Malchus. And this is the only recording of a healing miracle of the flesh wound that we see that Jesus does. He tells Peter to put his sword back in its place and tells Peter that all who take the sword will perish by the sword. This is not a call to pacifism. We see in other instances where Jesus tells his disciples to take two swords. What Jesus is doing, he is telling Peter that the kingdom will be reigned in and it will not be taken. The kingdom will not be taken by the sword and this kingdom will definitely not perish by the sword. And so by not sanctioning and even by negating Peter's aggression, Peter is rendered impotent. That's as far as he knew as he could go. That's as much as I could do, Jesus. But Jesus takes time to explain. You see, what's amazing in all this is the time Jesus takes to explain, to heal, and to continue to show care for us. Even with the coronavirus breakout, people's uncertainty, fear, and anxiety are all magnified and multiplied. But here, this is the worst time about to happen in Jesus' life Jesus is still certain, he is assured, and he is at peace every step of the way. In John chapter 10, he would tell his disciples, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. And he says, No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. He could, at his command, have more than 12 legions of angels at his disposal. Contextually, a legion, a Roman legion, was about 6,000 men. So 6,000 is a legion, more than 12 legions. But perhaps more significantly, if you're looking at this, each disciple would have at least had one legion of angels protecting them. But biblically speaking, even one angel could unleash plagues that wiped out entire populations of people or even blinded entire cities. 6,000 means it's overkill. 
more than 12 legions, more than 6,000 groups of 6,000 is a mind-blowing force. And this is what Jesus is telling Peter. You don't think I could command or have at my command, at my disposal, more than 12 legions of angels? But he tells Peter, this is how the scriptures are to be fulfilled. Again, not by his will, but by God's will. At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out against a robber? with swords and clubs to capture me. Day after day I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this time, all this, but all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. This is what Jesus intends to do by telling them this. Jesus reveals their hearts to the people that have come to arrest him. They didn't come in the day because their fear was of the people. Even Roman soldiers accompanied them this night because of their fear of riots. But the real reason Jesus explains to them that this is happening is that the scriptures are fulfilled. Again, Jesus gives the underlying reason of why things are happening. The scriptures say so. And you might think, of your, you might think to yourself, what kind of answer is that? But time and time again, Jesus would answer this way, showing us that even before we knew anything, God knew. Even before we had a plan to combat or counter <clears throat> anything, God had a plan. Nothing happening right now is outside of God's control or authority. He is the true and sovereign God. But the disciples didn't understand this, so they fled. When all human resources are exhausted, fear grips the soul. Anxiety presses against the mind, and your heart can no longer hold on to love. Again, Jesus earlier had reminded the disciples to pray that they may not enter into this kind of temptation. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards uh, to see the end. They take Jesus to Caiaphas' house. And the scribes and the elders gathered there. They didn't take him to the temple courts because it was late at night and it wouldn't have been open until the morning. But there was no time to wait until the morning. They needed to deliver Jesus to Pontius Pilate in the morning before he could take on any other cases so that Jesus could be put to death by the evening. Because by the evening, the Sabbath would have started. Remember, this is, Friday, this is like late Thursday, early Friday, the middle of the night. That would have meant that Jesus' trial, if they, were, if they didn't uh, push this, this trial would have been delayed until the weekend was over, and then it would have gotten too complicated, and potential riots, the people possibly even revolting. So this was done at dark, in the night. And Peter would follow Jesus from a distance, and would make it as far as into the courtyard of the high priest, his backyard, so to speak. 
Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. You need two viable witnesses in this court to sentence anyone. But we see here, before that, the sentence has already been decided. The Sanhedrin was already convinced of Jesus' guilt. They just needed to go through the motions of securing evidence against Jesus. They wanted witnesses to give testimony that would indict him with a charge deserving death. And so you needed two witnesses for a capital case, capital punishment, to kill Jesus. So many false witnesses would come forward, but nothing stuck. At last, Matthew says, two witnesses came forward that said that Jesus would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Desecration of sacred temples or sacred places in the ancient world were regarded as something punishable by capital uh, punishment. It was a capital offense. And interestingly enough, this is no different from the pagan world. And so this charge is brought against Jesus. The high priest is now getting riled up. He would stand and say, why don't you say anything? Look at these charges. But Jesus remained silent, fulfilling the scriptures. In Isaiah 53.7, it says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he not opened his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he not opened his mouth. The high priest, frustrated by Jesus' silence, does something bold and unconventional. The high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. So he asks him point blank if he is the Messiah or not. But before that, the boldness I was referring to was the charge under the oath of the living God. If Jesus doesn't answer, he breaks this legally imposed oath, although it could be said that the proceedings were anything but legal. If he denies that he is the Messiah, he goes, I'm not the Messiah, then the crisis is over, but so is Jesus' career. But if he affirms that he is the Messiah, then how could he be the Messiah and be imprisoned and be going through this kind of uh, precarious state. So that means he must be false. So any claim to messiahship would be worthy of meriting the death penalty. Their unbelief and rejection of Jesus precluded them from allowing, to see, allowing them to see any other possibility. But this is how Jesus answers. You have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophecy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Jesus answers alluding to two passages of Scripture which they would have gotten. 
One is Daniel 7.13, which we have gone over often, where Jesus claims Messiahship and exaltation. But the other is Psalm 110.1, where Jesus claims Messiahship, but also dominion. In Psalm 110.1, it says, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is not just dominion, it's dominance. Jesus' climactic self-disclosure <clears throat> combines self-revelation with threat. Jesus is king and he's judge. Not only does Jesus claim to be the Messiah, he clarifies what that meant through revelation and the oncoming judgment. And this infuriates the high priest. That's why he wouldn't have just said, mm, look at this fellow, he's blaspheming. There's no other option but to put him to death. He would tear his robes and declare Jesus had uttered blasphemy. Rage sweeps through the Sanhedrin and they all pronounce death as judgment. This is when they take turns spitting and striking Jesus in the face. In Mark and Luke, they would cover his face and blindfold Jesus and beat him, all the while exclaiming, prophesy, who hit you? Mocking him. But Jesus remained silent. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard and a servant girl came up to him and said, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out, saw, went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and, he, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed, and Peter remembered the saying of Jesus before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now there's a small insertion here where we see that while all this is going on, something is happening to Peter as well. Remember, he made it to the courtyard of the high priest. There was presumably a number of people gathered. They wanted to see the outcome of the case. Maybe they woke up because they wanted to see what the ruckus was all about. And even if it was at night, people would see like there is something. There's some kind of ruckus going on. And so a servant girl, meaning she was a servant, yes, but a servant from Jerusalem would say, hey, you were also with Jesus the Galilean. It was, it was obviously meant as a derogatory term as Jerusalemites were convinced of their geographical or cultural superiority. Peter denies this to everyone around him, meaning people must have perked up. It's like Jesus the Galilean, right? And, P, and so he moved, and then he goes, he, ah, I don't know him, I don't know him. So he moves to the entrance. What that means is in the center, there's more light. And so people could see his face. So he would move toward the entrance where there's less light. And so he goes from the brighter central light to the farther less lit area. And this is when another servant girls, uh, another servant girl, excuse me, these servant girls are apparently very sharp, would see Peter and say he was with Jesus of Nazareth. Peter denies it, this time with an oath, meaning he would swear. 
And when you swear an oath, you invoke a curse on yourself if you don't follow through. That's what swearing meant. And he's telling, he's, he's saying, I'm telling the truth, I do not know Jesus. Which he just distantly refers to as a man. It's like saying, I don't know that guy. And a little while later, bystanders who would have heard all this would come up to him and say, your accent betrays you. You're definitely one of the Galileans. There's no way you're from Jerusalem. There's no way you're from here because you go hot dog, right? That's not how we say it here. We say hot dog. I don't, I don't know how to say it. It's like hot dog. So <clears throat> every once in a while, an accent comes out from, I guess, even from my sister. And so she would say, oh, um, you know, if there's pasta, she would say, hey, do you want some sauce with that? And I was like, yeah, I would like a little sauce in this. But that's when a little bit of the accent comes out. But that's how you know where you're from, right? It's like, ah, there's no way you're from Jerusalem because you're going hot dog and sauce, right? And so we know you're not from here. So at this point, Peter would start throwing down curses on himself and start swearing, This is a very extreme response. He goes, I do not know the man. And immediately as he says this, the rooster crows. And he remembers what Jesus said and weeps bitterly. This is the last mention of Peter and Matthew. There is a Christian legend that after this, Peter never heard a rooster crow without weeping. I don't know if that legend is true or not, but it is a legend. So I have mentioned that all three sections were of the betrayal against Jesus. First was Judas. And you might think, okay, I get that. You know, he was always in it for himself. He only followed Jesus to see what he could get out of it. He just wanted the money. He wanted the fame. That's someone who would betray Jesus. And then the Sanhedrin, and you might think, how is this a betrayal? They never accepted Jesus. The Sanhedrin represented the people of God. The clear revelation of Christ could not be taken and passively rejected. It was vehemently rejected, thereby rejecting their own God. And finally, Peter. This was a man most passionately devoted to Jesus. And he still rejected and betrayed Jesus. And if you look at these passages, all three instances crescendo to Peter. Judas from betraying Jesus with a kiss, to the high priest tearing his robes, to Peter calling down curses on himself, but all denying Jesus, all wanting him gone from their lives. It would have all been incredibly depressing, but still this would all have been true if it ended just there. But the passage doesn't end there. The passage ends with Peter remembering He remembers what Jesus said to him before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. In Luke 22, 61, it says the Lord turned and looked at Peter 
And that would make Peter remember what, what, what Jesus said. This instance, this instance Peter's uh, denial was so deeply impressed in the early church's mind that his three denials are recorded in all four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's all four Gospels because it truly reveals the depth of human weakness. It shows us that no matter who you are, you are weak. No matter how passionate you are, as passionate as Peter was, it shows the depth of our weakness. But not only that, it doesn't end there. It also showed the church the greatness of God's mercy. And if you want to see the riches of God's divine grace, you need not look further than the end of the Gospel of John where Jesus goes to Peter. Remember how Peter would run from Jesus after this. But Jesus goes to Peter and tells Peter to follow me. And Jesus restores Peter. The reason why we can always love and follow Jesus is because Jesus is ever faithful. He will never abandon you. And even if you falter, and it is incredibly heartbreaking to deny the Lord, the God who has given you everything that you have, the God who has showered mercy and grace upon you, even though it's incredibly heartbreaking, the incredible mercy of God is shown here. It's his mercy that is truly astounding. And because of Jesus' mercy, we can leave sin to love and worship him. That's why we sing, what an incredible Savior. What an amazing God. And this is the God that we serve. Let's pray.